United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. Let's turn to the serious business of terrorism and why people go to the dark side. That's an oversimplification, but we are looking at, or our next guest is part of an effort to look at what it exactly it is that motivates people to join groups like ISIS. Leanne Erdberg is the Director of Countering Violent Extremism, or CVE, at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The Twitter handle is at USIP, and she joins us now. Leanne, welcome. Thank you for being on the program today. Thank you so much for having me this morning. There are many questions. I mean, people, for example, remember the case of Hoda Muthana, who had left the U.S. to join ISIS. She was declared not a U.S. citizen. But one wonders, why do you leave a a seemingly decent uh, place to be to go to a place that is so dark? And and tell us exactly how you're trying to approach this, the way to discern motivation and what makes people do what they do. I think it's a great question. I mean, we are almost 20 years after 9-11, and people have joined terrorist groups from all walks of life that with all sorts of diverse backgrounds and trying to figure out what is a single profile of somebody who is going to join a terrorist organization as a fighter or as a supporter has really defied our abilities for prediction. What we are trying to do is understand at the psychological level, as well as at the structural level, how these emotions manifest in the brain. And so we're pursuing a pretty interesting partnership with some neuroscientists who we hope can tell us what it looks like in the brain when you're striving for a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning as a part of a group, what it means to feel excluded or hopeless or marginalized, and what sharing a bond and being on a shared mission looks like in your brain. That sounds vaguely like people who join cults. I think there's a lot that we can learn from people who join cults. The idea that violence is an antisocial norm is often taken as, you know, just the bottom line, we all hate violence, but it's remarkably normal in a lot of places around the world. And so in a group, you can feel like violence is normal, even if our social norm is that it's abnormal. And so cults were able to do that pretty successfully for a period of decades. And I think terrorist groups are doing it pretty successfully today. Uh, we had spoken not too long ago with Farah Pandith. She's uh, written a book called How We Win, and she talked a lot about CVE. This is, again, trying to get to the root cause. You said in the beginning of our conversation that it's been 20 years since 9-11. Was there this kind of recruitment, this kind of movement to this sort of a group before that? Was it different from the way it manifests itself now? I think the historical prevalence was much less pre-9-11. The numbers of the last 20 years show that we have more terrorist groups in more places committing a grand diversity of attacks. Uh, But I think that the history of why people join politically violent movements has a lot to give us. And I think that we have ways in which we can learn from many historical struggles, particularly on how those historical struggles end. I wonder uh, if how much of this is about the political philosophy and the political bent, if you will, of these organizations, and how much of it is just that personal aspect of the individual who's seeking something, regardless of what that philosophy might be. I think it's both. 
I think for a long time we were looking for really oversimplified answers to why somebody was joining a group. It was because of poverty or they didn't have the right type of education or religion was leading them down the wrong path. I recently saw a study that there's over 15 factors of why children in one specific school district had inattention in the classroom. So if we can get to 15 factors of why children don't pay attention to their teachers, I think we can at least think about why people join terrorist groups as being equally complex and equally context-specific. Leanne Erdberg is Director of counter, Countering Violent Extremism at the United States Institute of Peace, joining us here on POTUS. There is one step of withdrawing from the situation that an individual finds himself or herself in, but there's another step, which is moving to violence. I guess there's a big question, too, is how would somebody reject not just maybe the social construct that they believe was important as a part of growing up, but then would move to a very aggressive or even violent persona to be a part of these groups. I think that this is a really important point that some of the neuroscientists that we've been partnering with uh, uh, have given me a lot more information. Um, and it's not always linear. People don't always turn to the violence after they've radicalized. There are plenty of groups around the world where they were part of militias and insurgencies before they aligned with terrorist groups. But perhaps more importantly, for those who are more Western recruits and foreign fighters and the like, many of today's most vicious terrorists are actually working to undermine some of the brain's natural mechanisms that are anti-violent. So usually you feel shame when you are committing violent acts, but some of Today's terrorist groups will do things like have groups act of violence. So you feel connected to your band of brothers while you're doing that violent act, with, which absolves you from some of that shame mechanism. Is that kind of like a warrior culture? I mean, it sounds like, yes. you know, killing is justified in a matter of war because now you are fighting a war. I think that's precisely it. People don't like to do things that they don't already believe in. And so understanding that self-fulfilling prophecy, I think a warrior culture is exactly one of the ways in which terrorist groups today are able to um, have their individuals feel like their violence is always justified. Leanne, it seems to me, uh, and at the risk of just grabbing a convenient phrase, that gaslighting is a part of this. That is that there is a redefinition, if you will, of the society that the person grew up in or, and and maybe not being truthful about it or definitely not being truthful about it, but painting it as uh, a victim, the, the individual being a victim of a society that rejected him or her. I think there's a lot there. I think that there are real and perceived grievances and victimhood is an incredibly strong manifestation in the brain. I had learned that um, threats against your identity are processed in the same part of your brain as threats against your person. And so feeling like a victim is, is an incredibly powerful emotional response. I think terrorists overpromise and underdeliver, and that's why there's actually so many defections uh, over time in a lot of these groups. But in that moment, they are able to capitalize on twisting a victim narrative into an incredibly empowering narrative. And you mentioned the groups that you're working with trying to sort of get to the heart of this. And I wonder, how do you do that? I mean, do you talk to former terrorists? Do you say what made you go here or are there more clinical tests that can be made? How, how, does, how do you investigate this? Talking to former terrorists is a, is a great uh, first step. Uh, 
there are a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life who have defected and who have left terrorist groups and understanding the reasons why they joined is incredibly important. But it only gets you part of the way because the reason why somebody says they joined many years after they did may not be an accurate representation of why they actually joined. And it doesn't always lead you to help uh, understand why people would leave. And so we're also trying to study other types of nonviolent groups that have shared bonds, that have shared moral missions, things like nonviolent resistance movements, and seeing them as a positive alternative. Do you form bands of brothers for boycotts and sit-ins and the way of uh, redressing grievances through legitimate democratic means? And as we wrap up here, I just wanted to ask Leanne, you know, as parents maybe have rebellious teenagers, what's new about that? But there may be members of a family and you wonder about the things that they're doing and how there's changes of behavior. Are there things to watch for? It's not like we're all looking for it. But, you know, if you see something, say something. What what do we as a, as a society, as a culture need to be watching for with our fellow Americans? I think that feelings of exclusion and hopelessness and marginalization can happen even at the family level. That sounds like a broad description because I think they're probably, everybody has felt excluded or hopeless or marginalized at some small point. But trying to understand um, how to make those type of efforts to help get people out of those situations. First of all, it's probably just good for communities and societies and families in general, but it also could be a really helpful prevention um, perspective to try and help young people from seeing that the only answer to what feels like a a very specific psychological situation doesn't have to be a violent group that overpromises and underdelivers. If people want to find the work you're doing and, and look more into it, where can they go? They can go to USIP's website, usip.org, and also sign up for events at the U.S. Institute of Peace. We're often bringing really interesting people to the stage, such as former terrorists and neuroscientists. I'd also advocate for resolvenet.org, which is a research network that USIP supports uh, that's devoted to more research and empirical evidence on violent extremism and terrorism. Leanne, I do appreciate your spending time with us on POTUS today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Leanne Erdberg is Director of Countering Violent Extremism at the U.S. Institute of Peace, CBE, they call it. You can find her on Twitter at USIP. That's the actual Twitter handle for the group at USIP. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.